Welcome to another episode of the Hoop Talk Podcast by fans for fans. I'm Ryan. There's my guy, Jalen. What's up, everybody? This podcast is where we discuss all things basketball, so expect a lot of hot takes, debates, and true display of basketball knowledge. Let's get right into it. Our topic today is all about the first two rounds of March Madness. We're going to talk about upsets, some big performances, some of the big matchups that happened during the first two rounds, and then we're going to talk about two matchups that we want to see in the Sweet 16. So, J1, let's talk about these upsets because if there's anything to describe March, it's madness. Yes, sir. So, Jalen, what has been the biggest upset so far in March Madness? Bro, I got to say that it might be Oral Roberts over Ohio State. Now, It's funny. So we talked about this with the guys the other day, uh, the Robinson bros, shout out to them. And we were talking so highly of Ohio State. If you remember, we were having that conversation where on the podcast, there was debates as to whether or not Ohio State not only would be able to make a significant run, but whether or not they would actually be the most legitimate threat outside of maybe Arkansas in that bracket against Baylor in the South. Ohio State blew that whole thing out of the water when or when the Oral Roberts Golden Eagles went ballistic. And that game was nip and tuck the whole game. It ended out 75-72 in overtime. And it was a super dramatic ending, by the way, in the terms that this game, I mean, it ended with a Dwayne Washington awkward three-point attempt and the thing was here's the thing before it even hit overtime Dwayne Johnson had a a, Dwayne uh Washington had a chance to win the game on an iso level play where instead of driving trying to create contact maybe just try to you know put up a legit make or miss shot that's like shows a legitimate attempt He brings the ball up, lets the clock run down, and then pulls back for a step-back three, something that I'm not going to sit here and associate Dwayne Washington with having in his repertoire. I'm sorry. You're not James Harden, bro. You're not not Steph Curry. It's not one of those things where down the line, I'm going to trust you with that kind of, like, with that kind of move late in the game. And so Dwayne Washington kind of blew the game at the end uh, Kevin Obanor with 30 points and 11 rebounds. That was to lead the team in both categories. I'm going to let you obviously talk about Mac, uh, Max Admis a, uh, a little bit later on because of the fact that, like, he's one of those players that really has stood out throughout the tournament. But I got to give Oral Roberts some credit because we were talking big boy stuff last, last podcast about Ohio State and the Buckeyes really making a run and potentially being one of those big threats to Baylor in the South region. And they cut that whole thing out in round one. I mean, if you want to talk about major upsets, what a way to start out March Madness than with a 15 seed upsetting the number two seed in Ohio State. I thought Ohio State was a very legitimate team this year, especially with Dwayne Dwayne Washington and EJ Liddell. I think those were two guys that I expected to lead Ohio state all the way to the final four this year. In one of my brackets, I had them go into the final four. And then the other one, I had them go into the final. That's how much faith I had in this team. 
But when we think about what Oral Roberts did, they have Max Admus, who is the leading scorer in the NCAA right now, 24 and a half points a game. And then Kevin Obernor, who not only had a double-double in the last game against Ohio State, but also in their first game against Ohio State, but also in the last game against Florida, I don't think anybody could have expected that. And that's the reason why it's March Madness. I mean, it's pandemonium. And I'm going to get into more of it later. You mentioned it. Max Admus is one of my players that had, that's been having like a great, great NCAA tournament so far, but this Oral Roberts team is dangerous. And Jalen, you mentioned it. 73% of their offense is made up by Kevin Obinor and Max Admus. That's insane. That like, that is, that alone should tell you a lot about how much they rely on them offensively. And the funny thing about Admus is Like I said, you're going to obviously go into it a little bit deeper in terms of his actual stat line. But like out of a lot of the guys we're going to talk about, Admus might still only be like the fourth or fifth best performer in this NCAA tournament, which just goes to tell you again how crazy this tournament has been over the first couple of days. Man, I mean, it is pretty insane. I mean, don't get me wrong. I thought Oregon State made a really interesting uh, statement taking out two teams that have like NBA level prospects on them for Oral Roberts and the noise that they've made with the kind of performances they're getting from their two top guys. It's hard to argue against what they're doing right now, especially with where they're seated. Speaking of upsets and speaking of just, just insane things to happen in the NCAA tournament so far, I think we need to talk about Syracuse. Let's just talk about, their run so far to the Sweet 16. We believe that their resume was not as good as some of the first four in teams that we had and that we believed or that that we believed in some of the uh, first four in teams. So the first game against San Diego State, San Diego State is a top 10 scoring defense in the NCAA. They hold their opponents to 61.2 points per game. Syracuse puts up 78 points on a top 10 scoring defense. San Diego State also has a great field goal shooting percentage on defense. They hold their opponents to 39.22% shooting from the field. Syracuse shoots 55% from the field. Now, defensively, Jalen, you talked about how dangerous their defense would be going into the tournament. They hold, Then they hold San Diego State to... 35.8% shooting from the field and 27.5% shooting from three. I mean, you want to talk about proving yourself to be a tournament team. They dismantled the best team in the Mountain West. A team in San Diego State that's won a lot of their games to close out the season. They closed out uh, the season going into the tournament, going into their conference tournament by beating Boise State twice. And I'm going to talk about this more later, but this was the Buddy Bayham show. For uh, sure, bro. That shit is crazy. <laughs> and then they faced West Virginia. So West, this, this game against West Virginia, it was a back-and-forth game. At one point, Buddy Bayheim and Sean McNeil were trading logo threes. Um, and speaking of threes, I think the one thing that's really been impressive from Syracuse has been their ability to shoot efficiently from three, 55% shooting from three against San Diego state, 45% shooting from three against West Virginia. And we've talked about how the three point shot would be a game changer for teams in the NCAA tournament. 
And this benefited teams like Syracuse, where you not only have Buddy Bayheim who's shooting threes efficiently, you also have Joe Girard the third, who is four of eight, who, who went or who shot four of eight from three, and Quincy Garrier, who went two of three from three in the game against West Virginia. I think I'm going to have to admit it though, Jalen, I was wrong about Syracuse. And I undermined how good this team could be when it comes to the NCAA tournament. And I think that's the weird part about it, right? Because we were harping on them about their schedule and how they performed throughout the year and what their resume looked like and everything like that. But at the end of the day, when it comes tournament time, it's you versus the team in front of you and it's win or go home and the stakes are a lot higher. And I think the biggest thing too is about preparation. I said it in the podcast when we were talking about them and how dangerous they might potentially be in that first round against San Diego State. And my first thing was that full court press is no joke. And if you don't get time to prepare for it, it's going to be one of those things that's rough. You read off the statistics in terms of how they performed from an offensive standpoint, talking about San Diego State. The Aztecs were not able to score at the normal clip that they are able to to work at as one of the better teams in the Mountain West from an offensive standpoint, mainly. So I think the biggest thing for Syracuse is that I think Gerard has been very underrated in all of this, of course, because the Buddy Beheim show has been kind of the story of what Syracuse's run has been. But Gerard's had seven assists in both games to lead the team. I think his ability to facilitate, yeah, he's probably just getting the ball to Beheim. But in all seriousness, the ability to facilitate and run the offense, Gerard has been a guy who's been very on and off this season he's actually been the guy that Syracuse has been like looking at very hard I mean Gary has probably been the most consistent to a certain extent but Gerard is the guy who they've been kind of waiting to like snap and it still just kind of hasn't clicked yet so it's good to at least see that he's getting his from a from a facilitation standpoint because he's kind of steering the ship which is what I think that's what I think Jim Beheim wants him to do from a from a point guard standpoint is just just keep this this ship straight you know what i mean keep things going because guys like behan are going to shoot the ball at a high clip i think the biggest thing too is we touched so much on them beating san diego state but kept giving that elbow to west virginia right after like i mean i think that was huge and i mean granted it wasn't nearly the same kind of victory i mean they beat san diego state by 16 the, the win over west virginia was only by three but nonetheless the ability to close out that game against one of the better teams in the big 12 like we have to remember that like West Virginia was one of the, the more dangerous teams in the Big 12 for most of the season. And we weren't even talking about them that much, honestly, besides when we did our breakdown, because teams like Oklahoma State was at the top of the, the top of the list for us in a lot of conversations. But we also didn't know they were going to be in the bracket. That was one of the bigger ones. Texas was the team, obviously, that kind of took the bull by the horns. No pun intended, obviously, in terms of that. But like. That was one of those teams that kind of took the reins in the Big 12 for the most part. And then obviously Baylor at the top of the list. But West Virginia was a really solid team for most of the year. And they closed the deal. And Bayhawk ate in that game as well. So Syracuse is doing some very unprecedented things against teams that are really, really solid offensively. I think that this is the chance for Syracuse to make another Final Four run like they did as a, as a low seed a couple of years ago. I remember that they were a 10 seed and they upset number one, Virginia. And that was a, that was a huge win for the program. It almost kind of gives off a similar feeling that this team can make the, the same run that that 10 seed team did just a couple of years ago. So moving on to our second upset, what was your second upset of the NCAA tournament? Ryan, this one hurts my heart, bro. 
This one hits deep because you know how I feel about my boy Ayo Desumu, bro. But Loyola Chicago over over that Illinois team, dude. Illinois didn't come to play, man. They did not come to play at all. Crutwig, dude. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna go in about Crutwig in a second. Illinois lost seventy-one to fifty-eight. To Loyola, Loyola Chicago, and it felt like it shouldn't have even been that close. That's the scary part about it. They did not come out to play. Io was not on his. The entire team offensively was just so flat. And I'm not just saying that because of the 58 points. It, it, you can tell it on the tape. You could just see it. It was one of those things that was just unnaturally lopsided. Loyola Chicago was playing with a lot more house money. They're coming off that game against Georgia Tech where it was a really big Big win, 11-point win over Georgia Tech, which I think was a good momentum sink for them because Georgia Tech was a really scary team out of the ACC at that ninth seed. That was a team that I'm not saying was going to make any type of scary runs, but could have really given Loyola Chicago a run for their money with the way they were playing towards the end of the year. But against Illinois, bro, we got to talk about this dude, Crutwig, man. This is the dude. This dude got to be at least 40. The dude, bro, I heard the most hilarious comparison the other day, dude. They said that this, this is the college version of Nikola Jokic, bro. Had me froze like a mother trucker. I was so confused. But then I had to go and look at the statistics, bro. Against Illinois, one of the best teams in the Big Ten. Yeah, 19 points, 12 rebounds, and five assists at the big man spot. I think he's like 6'9". So he's playing as a small ball five for Loyola Chicago. He was running Kofi Coburn off the court. It was ridiculous. There was like this one de- there was this one defensive sequence where there was a tip out tapped off of another player and Crutwig goes bonkers literally loses his mind and that was like my indication I'm like this team is here to stay like <laughs> this team is here to stay I think one of the biggest things to point out with Illinois I'll put I'll put this on front street Kobe Kofi Coburn sold he sold you could see it he was tired he was being single-handedly ran off the court defensively guys were beating him down the floor on a consistent basis. And that was one of the biggest things for Loyola, Loyola Chicago. I think the Ramblers, I can't, I don't have the statistics right in front of me in front of me in terms of what they did from a transition standpoint, but they scored a lot of baskets in open run scenarios. And I think that's another thing that really, really hurt me because I feel like that's one of those things that's an effort level thing. You know what I mean? And that kind of is a big deal. Now, I know a lot of people are going to go on Twitter or go on Instagram and pull up the, the Kobe reenactment of Ayo DeSumo sitting down with the Big Ten Championship trophy and joke about how did you lose to the 40-year-old Nikola Jokic when taking pictures like that and stuff like that. Don't get it twisted. Ayo DeSumo is still a first-round pick in my eyes. I just think that this team did not come to play. We've said all year Illinois is wishy-washy. They're on and off. This was all game. I thought the ceiling for this Illinois team was the 2005 championship team. I thought they were going to go back to the championship. I thought they were possibly going to win the championship. 
possibly face a team like Gonzaga, possibly face a team like Michigan. This team had that potential. But then I saw who they were playing. They were playing Loyola Chicago. Let's talk about the one thing that Yuri mentioned in the Georgia Tech matchup. Georgia Tech was playing without their ACC player of the year in Moses Wright. I think he could have made a huge difference in that game if he was if he was playing. But I have been saying this off camera for the past couple of weeks when we were talking about March Madness. Don't sleep on Loyola Chicago. I <laughs> I had them going to the final four this year in one of my brackets because I thought there was that slight chance that Loyola Chicago was going was going to make a final four run. If you remember a couple of years ago, they did something very similar. It took a couple of last minute buckets from uh, Dante Ingram and Clayton Custer to get them to the sweet 16 and eventually the elite eight. I think they're ready to make a final four run this year, but my second upset was maybe the biggest surprise outside of the Oral Roberts win. And that is Abilene Christian over Texas. You want to talk about a way to end the first round on an exclamation point. Abilene Christian beat Texas by one. Now, Texas has been a great team all year. Two great NBA prospects on their team and Kai Jones and Greg Brown. They have a great coach in in, uh, Shaka Smart. They have great um, upperclassmen leadership and great upperclassmen uh, players such as Andrew Jones or like uh, Andrew Jones and uh, Matt Coleman. But Abilene Christian has been underrated for the entire season. Top five scoring defense. And this top five scoring defense held Texas to 52 points. Their defense also led the NCAA in turnovers. They forced 20 turnovers a game. Texas turned the ball over 23 times. And before the Andrew Jones three-pointer towards the end of the game with about 11 seconds to go, Texas's last bucket came from Matt Coleman. And that was with about four minutes and 50 seconds to go in the second half. And just to talk about how big this win was, like the defense, the, the way that Abilene Christian was able to hold Texas for four minutes, hold them scoreless for, for the most crucial four minutes in the game when Texas needed to go on a run. That's a testament to how great um, Abilene Christian's defense was. And just to talk about how big their win was, this was their first tournament win ever. And it came over Texas. What a first round win. Bro, there's a lot of statistical anomalies with this game to the point that it is head scratching. Abilene Christian made three of 18 threes in this game. It's less than 17%. Insane. Insane. But on top of that, let's talk about some of the craziest things I've ever seen from a statistical standpoint, not just in the NCAA tournament, but in college basketball in general. Ryan, Avaline Christian got up 67 shots. Texas got up 40. 40 shots in a 40-minute ball game. That makes 
absolutely no sense. That makes absolutely no sense. In terms of when you think about the kind of impact that you can have offensively in a 30 to 40 minute ball game to outshoot another team by 27 is insane. And it literally comes from off the glass. That was the part that made no sense to me. You have two of the better rebounders, at least I would think so, (laughs) from where they stand in the terms that Kai Jones was on the floor. Now, now Greg Brown, I'm going to get on him in a second. He only played six minutes. He's arguably their best rebounder. They really kind of needed him to be on the floor a lot more than he was. They got out-rebounded on the offensive glass 18-5, to despite the fact that they actually technically won the rebound battle because when it comes to defensive rebounds, it was 18, it was 18 to 26, I believe, in terms of defensive rebounds. So on both ends of the spectrum, technically, you could say the Avalon Christian won overall, but if we're talking about on the defensive glass, Texas was ahead by a decent enough margin. So the fact that Kai Jones, Greg Brown weren't nearly as effective against a team like this that was crashing the offensive boards, basically what I'm trying to say is this is another one of those effort things, like how I was talking about with Illinois. This is one of those things where it showed up where you just saw that one team wanted it a lot more than the other. Now, one of the biggest biggest things that I want to touch on is that Shaka Smart might be fighting for his job soon. I'm going to be honest. Um, these last couple NCAA tournaments, not good. Now, granted, they've been in some very weird circumstances. He's beat, beat by some buzzer beaters lately, um, some really bad final sequences over the last two or three years in the tournament with Texas. But, Ryan, this from an offensive standpoint, this game was horrible. Avalon Christian dominated them from an effort standpoint, which was ridiculous. I'm not saying Shaka should be out, but I'm thinking that he's going to be a guy who's going to really be on the hot seat going in the next year, especially with the fact that this team has expectations. You know what I mean? And they had two NBA-ready guys on the floor, and one of them didn't produce at all. And the other one, in Kai Jones had 11 points and three rebounds while playing 31 minutes, which was third highest on the team. That's that's tough. You know, the interesting thing, too, is that, like, not only did Appaline Christian out-rebound Texas on the offensive side, they outscored Texas in terms of second-chance points, 12 to nothing. Anomaly statistics, bro. Just anomaly statistics. We're talking about a 14 over a three seed. And these are the kind of things that took place. What? Speaking of big performances, let's talk about two of the big performances that we've seen so far from the NCAA tournament. Jalen, what is the first big performance that you've seen so far in the first two rounds? Um, So I think the biggest one... For me, or not the biggest one, that's a little bit of a stretch, but Drew Timmy, man. Drew Timmy is a that dude's gonna be a problem. I don't think he's gonna be an NBA prospect this year, but I could definitely see him 
being a guy who comes back to school, Gonzaga continues to be a dominant roster with the kind of guys that they have coming in in the next recruiting class as well. And he'd be one of the better players on that team and potentially play himself into a top 15 pick next year. What he did against Oklahoma was ridiculous. I mean, with no threes, he had 30 points, 14 rebounds, four assists, and a block. He only turned the ball over once. He only committed one personal foul. And he shot 75% from the floor while doing it. That, look, dude, I, I know I know Gonzaga is crazy from an offensive standpoint. I completely understand. Corey Kispert, I think, is technically their best player from a statistical standpoint. Jalen Suggs is a guy who's going to be a top three, top five guy in this upcoming NBA draft. Joel Yayi is still a guy who I think is not getting a ton of love, but I think he's been playing relatively well as within his role. Drew Timmy had a coming out party with this Oklahoma performance, and I'm not saying that he's going to be a guy who carries Gonzaga, but I think that those little standout performances are going to be the kind of things that let you look back at this Gonzaga team and just continues to remind you why they've been as dominant as they've been and why people are penciling them in as national champions, despite the fact that Baylor's still in the mix, that Arkansas is still in the mix, teams like that that are still extremely dangerous and also have NBA caliber t- uh, uh, players on their teams as well. Drew Timmy, man, for him to be really the third, if not the fourth option offensively, but be averaging 18.8 points per game, 7.3 rebounds a game, as the, essentially the third offensive option, and then to have that kind of game against Oklahoma, man, it just goes to tell you how stacked this team is. It's practically unnecessary. If college basketball had a 2K, this is the team. Yeah, and Drew Timmy, just to talk about some of the success that he's had with this Gonzaga team, I mean, he is one of three players on this team that's up for National Player of the Year, and rightfully so. Again, this is a guy who does not take a lot of threes, and – he just makes up for it by by being the best big on the team. This is a guy in Drew Timmy that I expect to continue to make an impact throughout the tournament along with Jalen Suggs and Corey Kispert. He's not as electrifying of a player like Suggs or Kispert, but this is a guy in Drew Timmy that can give you 20 and 10 on a consistent basis. I think that does he – go in the first round the NBA draft I think it's a possibility I think it's a late first round pick though we did mention this in another conversation that um we believe that Jalen Suggs is a is a lottery pick Corey Kisper was a potential lottery pick and Drew Timmy was a guy that can go either in the late first or early second rounds just to touch on all three of them as a whole I mean the fact that you have three NBA pro or three NBA prospects that could all go in the first round this year is a testament to how great Gonzaga is as a program. The first big performance I want to talk about is Buddy Bayheim. I mentioned this earlier in the episode when I talked about the Buddy Bayheim show against San Diego State. Buddy Bayheim has been one of the best, if not the best, scorer in the NCAA tournament, though, uh, in the NCAA tournament thus far. In his first game against San Diego State, 
He put up 30 points on 11 of 15 shooting from the field, and he hit seven threes. In the second game against West Virginia, he put up 25 points on 8 of 17 shooting from the field, and he hit six threes. Jalen, you talked about Buddy Beheim as a player in the ACC breakdown that's not afraid to take chances when he's shooting the ball. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It's working for him now. He's been shooting the ball efficiently from the field and from three in the NCAA tournament. And this is a guy who's becoming a great playmaker for the Syracuse team in the tournament. And I feel like if he continues to play like this, Syracuse can make it to the final four. Yeah, I think the biggest thing with Buddy, right, for me is that he's just shooting so unconsciously right now. And, I mean, we talked about this back in the ACC breakdown, and I'm glad you touched on the fact that that was something that I brought up only because of the fact that I think it's still so relevant now, right? Like, I think this is the part where when you say something like that, you wonder whether or not it's going to stick, right? Because we were in such an interesting part in the season when we did the ACC breakdown. It was still relatively early. Um, They were one of the first, I think, three conferences that we actually discussed. So it was one of those things where you were just wondering how it would develop. And, I mean, Buddy actually got significantly better after that podcast. We might have helped him out a little bit. So, I mean, with that being the case, I mean, the last 10 game stress that he had, he was averaging 20 plus a game, he was shooting threes like a madman. I think he's shooting like 45% or something like that in the last 10 games from beyond the arc. I mean, he's been shooting unconsciously. And I think that's one of his biggest strengths. It is one of his biggest weaknesses as well is that he can be so streaky. Ryan, we were talking about this a little bit off camera. This is interesting about Buddy Baham, Baham as a NBA draft prospect, right, is the fact that he's kind of came on late. He's got a bit of this, like, NCAA March Madness Cinderella run going that's kind of building his stock up. And the fact that he's, like, one of these better three-point shooters, that's going to be one of his elite skills. But questions are going to come in terms of whether or not he's a product of the fact that from a defensive standpoint, he's not a good one-on-one defender. He's, he's a very big product of the Syracuse full court press style of defense, but I think was one of the bigger keys to them beating the Aztecs in the first round. Um, I just think that Bayham shooting the lights out to the point that it's like, who needs defense when you hit seven threes? Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, that's the part that kind of freezes me up. It's like, who needs defense when you're shooting so well from from that from that deep and making teams respect you? Yeah, Bayheim. Like I said, I, I tried to warn people going into the tournament that if you didn't have Syracuse going past the first round, you might have been sleeping on the orange. But Bayheim is playing beyond what I whatever I could have expected. I honestly genuinely expected Syracuse to catch San Diego State lacking strictly from a defensive standpoint, and that definitely did take place, holding that team to 62 points. But Bayheim snapping like that, could have never anticipated it. The interesting thing, too, is we were talking off camera before the episode that Buddy Bayheim's draft stock is not great right now. He is mm-hmm. slated to go undrafted in many, in many of the mock drafts. But I think if he continues to play like this, he may need to test the waters. I think he has a chance of going in the second round especially when he's hitting six and seven threes a game. He's doing what Jimmer Fredette did for BYU in this tournament. I love the BYU comparison to Jimmer Fredette a lot because I think that's very 
reminisce it in a lot of different ways not only their run but the way that he's playing I think that's huge I think one of the other things that'll probably come to mind and it's not a great comparison but I think one of the guys that we probably would compare him to in terms of maybe guys we saw last season is Sam Merrill from Utah State who was a really solid three-point shooter coming out of college as well he went towards the back end of the second round his three-point shooting was the thing that caught that really carried him we got to remember Buddy is 6'6", almost 200 pounds, shoots the three at a really high clip. He's been doing really well as of late. But the way he's shooting from three, he could be playing himself into a second rounder just off of that. And I agree with you. I think if he has a really good if he has a really good performance in this upcoming game, I mean, I think it's debatable on whether or not he's playing himself in and now. Houston is no team to mess with offensively, but it with the way the tournament is going, if I got to trust Syracuse in the shootout, give that boy the ball. Cause I mean, he's getting him, him versus Quentin Grimes is going to be a show to watch. I agree. I think, I think that's a, I think that's a matchup that I want to see Quentin Grimes against Buddy Bayhive, two great scores throughout this tournament. I mean, Quentin Grimes has been great all season long. I think that this is going to be a matchup that could honestly go either way, especially with how both of the players are playing right now. Jalen, just moving on to the second big performance, you mentioned that off-camera that UCLA was a team that could make another run to the Final Four, but who was a player from UCLA that you thought has had a couple of big performances so far? I mean, dude, it's Johnny Juzang. I mean, honestly, this is one of those things where, like, I'm torn because when it comes to the Pac-12, man, you know my guy. Chris Duarte up there with the Oregon Ducks murdering over there. Sorry to VCU that you weren't able to play in that first game. That would have been a really good, really excellent matchup. There would have been two prospects in there because uh, VCU has a really talented uh, defensive guard on their team. That would have been really interesting to see go up against Chris Duarte. But nonetheless, Johnny Juzang for UCLA, man. This UCLA team. Ryan, we got to talk about them for a second because, look, I, I know that I, I'm going to and I'm going to get to I'm going to get to Johnny. I'm going to get to him in a second. But we have to talk about this UCLA team because they are a team that is playing way above, way, way, way above their their caliber right now. I mean, if we if we're going to think about it realistically, right, let's look about it like this. Arguably their best player, Chris Smith, is out. Their best recruit, Dacia Nix, opted out, which I think is another thing that's really interesting to touch on as well. And they still have not only made the NCAA tournament, but have made some some actual noise in the NCAA tournament. Now, let's get to Juzang because I don't want to completely let this fall under the cracks. But over the last two games, really, mm, eh, let's start with Michigan State because I feel like that's pretty important. 23 points, four rebounds, two assists. Light day at the office. Simple stuff. Goes up against BYU. Does better. (laughs) 27 points, five rebounds, gets a block in there. Shot 42% from three, 80% from the free throw line, 62%. 
from the floor. 62.5% from the floor. Insane shooting splits. Then you get Avalon Christian. Cools down a little bit, but plays a relatively solid game overall. 17 points, three rebounds, one assist, one block, one steal. Doesn't turn the ball over at all, despite being one of their main primary offensive weapons. Shoots 42.9% from three. Does that in a cool 27 minutes as they win by 20, by the way. (laughs) A cool 20 against a team that we were just raving about the way that they perform against Texas. Johnny Juzang, I think, next to Buddy Bayheim could arguably be the second best performer in this entire tournament as a totality over the first few matchups that they've had. Now, Alabama? Yeah. So shout out to the Robinson Bros and their take on Alabama, but I'm going to shorten it and put it simple. They play D and they score a lot. (laughs) So... UCLA is going to have their hands full. I think this is going to be one of those games where guys like Campbell, uh, I mean, a handful of other uh, bodies are going to have to really show up. Johnny Duzang, I think, is going to be a really big contributor. They're going to have to give him the rock. I think this is going to be a game where they're going to have to rely on him offensively. Lord, I don't think UCLA wants to get in a shootout with Alabama for anything. But I guess similar to what I said about Buddy, if I got to get in a shootout with Alabama, give me Johnny Juzang with the way he's been playing lately. I got to be honest, though. This game, this is going to be tough. I think the Syracuse versus Houston matchup is going to be a lot closer. I think Alabama, I'm not calling for a blowout or anything, but I think Alabama might just win this game against UCLA relatively handily. I think this might be one of those games where Johnny gets a little humbled, but We'll have to see. But he's been playing amazing so far. Yeah, I would have to agree. I think Johnny Juzang has been one of the best NCAA tournament basketball players so far in the tournament. They lost Chris Smith early in the year, and he was their leading scorer. And it was it was kind of hard early in the season to really identify who was going to take the role of Chris Smith. I mean, Johnny Juzang has been the guy so far for them. I think we, we can't really forget about the contributions of Tiger Campbell great facilitator for UCLA as well. Jalen Hill is another guy who I feel like they are really missing. He's a guy who provides a lot of scoring coming off the bench. It's good that they have Cody Riley healthy too, because he's a huge asset in the paint. I don't think it's going to be as close as people think it would be. I think Alabama is a great scoring team. They have Herbert Jones, all SEC first team, John Petty, NBA caliber player. Jane Shackelford, Javon Quinterly, that's a dangerous backcourt already. UCLA is going to have to put up a fight. Johnny Juzang is going to have to have a big game in order for UCLA to really pull off the upset. My second big performance, we talk about, you know, high-level scorers like, you know, Buddy Bayheim, Johnny Juzang. I want to talk about another high-level scorer for Oral Roberts, and that's Max Abnis. I want to talk about his games against Ohio State and Florida because Max Abmus has been a standout player for Oral Roberts this season. He's averaging 24 and a half points a game this season, not to mention he leads the NCAA in that category. He put up 29 points in the overtime win against Ohio State, 26 points in, in the second round game against Florida. Um, much like Buddy Bayheim, like I mentioned, um, is a high volume scorer. He's not afraid 
to shoot the ball when he gets the chance. He's also a very skilled playmaker. I also don't want to forget about how great Kevin Obunor has been too. Back-to-back double-doubles in the NCAA tournament. Uh, 30 and 11 in the win against Ohio State. 28 and 11 in 28 and 11 in the win against Florida. I think it's going to come up. I think it's going to be up to guys like uh, Max Admus and uh, Kevin Obunor to really take over late in the games like they have been doing for the entire NCAA tournament. I think for as for Admus, if he continues to play like this, we've been talking about uh, draft stocks a lot recently. We may be talking about Max Admus as a guy who may get drafted in the second round. Yeah, Admus, I think one of the biggest things, we talked about this off camera too, man, we was processing a lot of information off the grid, bro. <laughs> it was so much to take in in terms of this tournament. So if it seems like it's a lot of stuff that we talked off camera about, it's just because, man, we were trying to put two and two together, all the upsets, all the great performances. It was ridiculous. But we are talking off camera about Max Admus and about – is you know his ability to play at such a high level right now and you know one of the biggest things that i that i touched on with, with ryan was that he's playing in a pro level nba style offense pick and pop style offense pick and roll spread style like he play he's playing in a pro offense which is very beneficial to him not only projecting as a guy who could maybe go late second round um at the guard spot but I mean, the other thing is that it gives him a significant advantage from a college basketball standpoint because it's an offense that's not very common down there, obviously. It's a lower-level basketball, you know, league in comparison to the NBA, obviously. It's the NBA pipeline, not, you know, the NBA. So playing that level of offense is one of those things that gives him significant benefits because other teams do not seem or face that defense consistent or face that offensive style consistently. I think the biggest thing with Admis is, dude, I mean, led the country in scoring again. I mean, and that's in comparison to some like some some of the top guys, Cam Thomas for LSU, Luca Garza, who's arguably going to be national player of the year. Like he was above guys of, of, of really high stature from an offensive standpoint throughout the entire year. So this stuff in the this stuff in the tournament is not something new in case you guys are just like showing up to the party when it comes to this Oral Roberts team, like. This guy has been consistent all year as a high-volume guy. I'm really interested to see what they do in this upcoming round because right now, dude, man, Florida Gulf Coast was a team. They were a team a couple of years ago that was catching a lot of bodies throughout the NCAA tournament. We might have a chance to see Oral Roberts make a smidge more noise and i think they might sneaky be more talented overall so watch out for oral roberts man they are they are a problem and that dunk city florida gulf coast team was amazing the upsets that they were able to they were able to pull off especially with upsetting georgetown in the first round i thought was huge it almost kind of feels like oral roberts is going to be a team that makes it to the elite eight I do think that, yeah, Oral Roberts has the capability of being a team that makes it to the Elite Eight. I would say a Final Four run is a bit of a stretch, but I think with the way that Abmas and Obunor have been playing, the fact that they're 73% of their offense, I think it's just going to come down to how, how they're going to carry Oral Roberts into the Elite Eight, into the Final Four, possibly into the championship. 
I feel like with this tournament, it's pandemonium, and I feel like that anything's possible. So it's hard to really like pinpoint who's gonna who's going to go to the final because some of our teams that we expected to go to the final are out of the tournament already. And Ohio State and Illinois and Texas. I mean, I don't know who's next. But let's talk about some of these big matchups in the first and second round. A lot of big upsets, a lot of big moments, and a lot of big matchups, a lot of close games as well. And Jalen, let's let's talk about some of these these close games. What is your first matchup that you want to talk about? We're talking about in terms of the first two rounds. First two rounds, yes. Man, Oregon over Iowa. Man, that that was a gut punch. I mean, don't get me wrong. Chris Duarte is the real deal. LJ Figaro, I like him. He had 21 and 7 in that game. I like him. I mean, they put on an offensive clinic. I mean, down to the fact that Will Richardson, he was creeping on the triple double on the low 19, 6, and 7. Oregon put on a clinic with 95 points against Iowa. I told y'all though about this dude, Luca Garza. 36 points. Nine rebounds, three threes, team high 36 minutes, blown out by 15. He's going to get his numbers regardless. Wees Camp, seven for 17, three of eight from three. 17, 6, and 5. The rest of the starting lineup had zero points. Thank you, Ryan. I'm glad that you're indicating that these players outside of Garza went over from 3 and scored no points. You can force feed Garza 30 to 40 points a night if you want. You will not win the game. Guys like Bohannon, guys like Wieskamp, who shoot the three at a really nice clip, were not getting offensive touches. Ryan, Bohannon had four shots. He missed all of them. McCaffrey had one shot. He missed it. Frederick shot three times. He missed all of them. It was Garza with 20 attempts. And Wieskamp with 17. Now, there was this little stretch with Keegan Murray off the bench that took nine shots, but he only hit two of those, one three in the game. Ryan, I try to tell everybody, bro. Iowa's good when Joe Wieskamp plays at a high level. Iowa's good when guys like Bohannon, guys of the caliber, of Jordan Bohannon, who let's 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 go with this. Let's go to the season stats, Ryan, who shoots 39% from three. Hit no threes in the game and got less than five shots in the game. One of the better three-point shooters, not in the country, not only just in the, not only only just on his team, but in the entire country. I, I don't have anything else to say. I, I'm just I'm just putting it lightly, dude. I think Chris Duarte, I've still I 
if Chris Duarte is not a top 20 player, you're tripping. I'm telling you this right now. If he's not a top 20 player in the NBA draft this upcoming year, you're paying too much attention to age. This dude projects to the NBA too well for him not to be a top 20 pick in the first round. That's going to be a whole separate podcast. We'll talk about talk about underrated prospects sometime later on down the stretch when we get closer to that time frame. I was not good unless their supporting cast plays at a high level. I know everybody wants to ride on Luke, Luca Garza. I've been saying it all year. I'm not so much surprised that Oregon won. I had Oregon going into the Sweet 16 in both my brackets. I knew they were going to be Iowa. I knew Oregon was a better team, especially with this three with the, with this three guard lineup of LJ Figueroa, Krista Warte, and Will Richardson. Jalen, we mentioned with the Pac-12 breakdown, how much of an effect Will Richardson was going to be, especially considering he was injured to start the year. He comes back and he is close to a triple-double, 19-6-7 and seven in that game against Iowa. You want to talk about the effect that he's having on this team right now, along with someone who Jalen thought should have been the Pac-12 player of the year in Chris Duarte. You want to talk about the effect that LJ Figueroa has had on this team, considering he was he's a transfer from St. John's. There's a lot to credit Oregon with because their offense was superior to Iowa's offense. I think that... You know, Luca Garza was the guy. Luca Garza, they're going to keep, they're going to give Luca Garza the ball every single time. And he had 36 points. I'm not even surprised at that. What I am surprised with is the zero points by by Jordan Bahannon, the zero points by McCaffrey, the 17 points by Wieskamp, who I thought was going to have a bigger game. I mean, what, what else is there to say? I think that Iowa, I knew was going to struggle because I thought Oregon had the better offense. And Chris Duarte had a great game. LJ Figueroa went off for 21-7. Will Richardson was pretty close to a triple-double. I mean, Oregon was the better team. And that's that's something I'm going to touch on later with my Sweet 16 matchup, Oregon and USC. I think Oregon's offense is going to outplay and outmatch certain teams and certain defenses. This offense is that good. Speaking of offenses... My first big matchup that I'm talking about is Oklahoma State against Liberty. This was a matchup that we heavily discussed on the All Facts Media episode with Aaron and Andrew Robinson. And there were a couple things we, we looked at going into this matchup. How was Kate Cunningham going to play and how effective would the supporting cast be? Let's start with Kate Cunningham. To say I was shocked to see that Kate Cunningham had one point in the first half would be an understatement. Kate turns it on the second half. He goes up for 14 of his 15 points. He scores 14 of his 15 points in the second half, including nine straight. I think if Liberty shut down Cade the second half, they would have won the game. Looking at the supporting cast, I had questions about how they were going to play going into the game because I felt the supporting cast was inconsistent at times during the season. Avery Anderson stepped up. At like he did when Cade was out for the for a couple of games, twenty one points in that game. He led he led the team in that category against Liberty. Matthew Alexander Moncrief, another freshman, uh, for this for this Oklahoma State team, ten points and nine rebounds. One rebound re, one rebound short of a double double. Isaac Likely also contributed with nine points, six rebounds, and four assists. But the other thing that Aaron Robinson talked about. And we, we remember the wager that he talked about. 
four double-digit scores on this Liberty team. Elijah Elijah Cuffey had 16. Darius McGee had 12. Blake Preston had 11. Chris Parker had 10. These four players stepped up for Liberty and gave them scoring. That was the thing that we talked about. We knew Liberty had multiple double-digit scorers on this team. They were going to outscore Oklahoma City or Oklahoma State. That's what Aaron Robinson thought. But when Oklahoma State gave, when when Oklahoma State was gaining momentum in the second half, and Cade had that second half surge, Oklahoma State looked like they were going to win the game, and they they ended up winning the game. Dude, Cade's an animal. I just, I mean, it's not rocket science. He's an animal. Now I understand everybody wants to act like. Look, I'm. I have my 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 minor concerns with him choosing to try to get his teammates involved in the first half and then ramped up in the second half. Um, I believe that Andrew had a very interesting stat that's been out there that he averages five points a game in the first half and like sixteen or something like that in the second half of ball games, which is insane. That's like a that's like a next level turn up. And I think in the NCAA tournament, it's dangerous to play with fire like that. And I think that's what got Kate caught against Oregon State. He got away with murder in that first game against Liberty. And I think that that's one of those things that made that wager so interesting because we actually had to take to Instagram and figure out who won, who actually won the wager because Liberty lost the game. But Cade was held relatively in check. Andrew said that he would score 25, pencil it in. We have the tape, but he didn't even score 20, but he scored at such a high clip at the clutch moments in the game towards the closing, the closing minute, the, in, in the closing minutes that they were able to pull out the dub and Oklahoma State was able to advance the next round. We literally needed clarification on how the, the quote unquote right wager that we actually made off camera, unfortunately, um, was going to end out or how we were going to go about doing it because of the mere fact that that game was so lopsided because Liberty played at such a really played really well all game. It was just Cade was too much in the final minutes of the game. With that interesting stat, it, it, it's interesting to say that, you know, only averaging five points in the, in the first half, 16 in the second half. I mean, it, it's a testament to how he's able to turn it up in the second half at the right time especially when his team was down at the half. He only had one point. Um, I mean, Cade, Cade, was, Cade was doing the best that he could to lead his team to a win. And, you know, fourteen scoring 14 of his 15 points and nine straight at one point. I mean, he was, he, he was a great player. I mean, I don't think it really changes the fact he's the number one overall pick, but. Yeah, I mean he he's been he's been great this he's been great for them. Moving on to the second big matchup, Jalen. What's another big matchup that you want to talk about? This one's kind of low key. I'm gonna be honest. I, I think that the way Houston played against Rutgers was huge. I think one of the biggest things for me was just the mere fact that like you know Quentin Grimes shot the lights out of the ball, five for nine from three, twenty two and nine on the night. Thought that was really big for that team. I think the biggest thing for me, too, was that I was kind of looking at, like, underrated prospects because, you know, Quentin Grimes is a guy who's going to float anywhere between the bottom half of the first round and maybe the early stages of the second round. Then you have a guy in Ron Harper Jr., um, son of former NBA player Ron Harper, um, didn't have really that great of a game uh, 
two of eight from the floor, uh, six, five, and two on the night, three personal fouls. It was one of those things where, like, in a matchup against two potential NBA prospects, I would have just liked to see a lot more out of Ron Harper Jr., but I saw enough out of Quentin Grimes that I'm starting to understand more and more why he went into the transfer portal moving away from Kansas. I think that the biggest thing was obviously injuries hurt him earlier on in that season with Kansas, but I think that his transfer over to Houston has benefited him in more ways than just his draft stock. I think it's really gotten his confidence up. I mean, he led all shooters with 15 field goal attempts and hit seven of them five of them being threes, as I mentioned beforehand. I mean, the dude was just extremely active on the boards as well. The nine rebounds for the fact that the dude is 6'5", I think is really transferable. So I think that's huge as well. That was one of the big matchups. This was a game that ended in a really interesting way for people who don't remember or didn't watch the game. This is a game that had a little bit of a a buzzer beater vibe to it with the fact that uh, Tremont Mark hit a three with 24 seconds uh, left in the game to close out the game 63 to 60. Um, It's not necessarily a buzzer beater, but it was the dagger three that basically put Houston up and moved them on to the next round. So, I mean, this Houston team could play in the clutch. They played really well, and Grimes is playing at a high level. Yeah, I think that when we're talking about Houston, I think the first thing we have to talk about is Quentin Grimes because Quentin Grimes is the engine that makes this team go. I think that... You know, when we're talking about Quentin Grimes as a player, I mean, he's one of the best players in the NCAA tournament. And I think that he, he's going to be a guy that is going to lead this team possibly to the Elite Eight, possibly to the Final Four. Um, I think this upcoming matchup with Syracuse is going to be interesting considering that, you know, we talked about the guard matchup earlier with uh, Buddy Bayheim and Quentin Grimes. I think that that's a matchup that, is going to be very interesting to see who come who comes out on top, um, especially considering like how great both of those guards have been playing so far in the NCAA tournament. My second big matchup that I want to talk about is Arkansas over Texas Tech, and this was an amazing game. But this was a battle of backcourt duos for Texas Tech. They had Mac McClung and Terrence Shannon. For Arkansas, they had Moses Moody and JD Nate. Terrence Shannon had a great game. He had twenty points. Moses Moody scored Moses Moody scored 11 of his 15 points in the second half. These are four great players and I think these four these are four players that all have the capability of being drafted in the upcoming NBA draft. But in the battle of backcourts in a close game back and forth in a close back and forth game that could have gone either way, it was about who was going to make the play that would send their team to the Sweet 16. Kyler Edwards had the chance to make that play. But Arkansas played great defense to close it out. Jalen, if you watch the final sequence, Arkansas guarded Mac McClung and Terrence Shannon heavily. They did not want Shannon or McClung to beat them in the final minutes. But it was also great defense by Justin Smith, who had 20 points in the game, to make sure that Kyler Edwards could not get a good layup. So this was it, it was it was that one possession that determined who was going to win the game, and Arkansas won. Yeah, and I mean the biggest thing is that you have to remember that the biggest the the biggest outcome for that uh for this team is that Arkansas is making the Sweet Sixteen for the first time in twenty five years. That's that's crazy. 
that is insane to think about that kind of stretch as an SEC team like this has played so well this year. But I mean, to think that they have such a significant history like that within the, uh, the NCAA, I, man, I think at the end of the day, for me, Moses Moody didn't have the kind of breakout crazy performance that I would have liked against Texas Tech, considering that it was against Terry Shannon, who was going to be a guy who I think could arguably go in the first round, um, strictly more so for his defense. But he played with so much poise and control and decision making. Um, 15.6 rebounds, 6 of 11 from the floor. I mean, just played really fluid, played really solid. We have to remember, Arkansas is not a deep team. This team goes seven deep. I mean, all of their starters, except for um, except for one being uh, Jalen Williams, played 30 minutes or more, and uh, Williams played 28 minutes. So that's not even that's not even hurting them in terms of you know his quote unquote lack of production on the floor, despite the fact that he was on the floor for 28 minutes and only had one point, but he did have 10 very big rebounds, which was uh, huge in this game to keep the rebounding battle close. They did lose a rebounding battle 36 to 38, but Jalen Williams was the only thing keeping it remotely in uh, at bay. So I think, I think Arkansas, man, I think they are the team now, especially since we've discussed the fact that Ohio state is clearly out of the picture. I think Arkansas is the best team left to make a run in the South against Baylor. But I mean, they're going to have to, they're going to have to keep this thing rolling first. And to close out the episode, we're going to talk about two of our Sweet 16 matchups to watch out for. So, Jalen, what is one Sweet 16 matchup that you're watching out for? So, I think the first one has to be Michigan uh, versus Florida State. Um, Ryan, I found something really interesting. I, I hyped you up on this before the podcast started about, uh, about what Scotty Barnes has done so far in the NCAA tournament. Scotty Barnes has only taken four shots in the entire tournament. Four. I find that, like, extremely interesting. You know what I mean? As a guy who is projected to be, like, a top 10, top nine pick in the NBA draft as a versatile, switchable forward that can play point, but does a lot of initiating offense, can do a lot of things on the, the defensive end of, uh, end of the court. He had three steals against Colorado. That was huge. Um, five assists in the game, which I think is more indicative of what he can be as an offensive playmaker. But he had 10 points total in the tournament, four shots in total in the tournament over the course of two games. I really want to see a more aggressive Scotty Barnes. And I'm thinking that maybe his matchup against Franz Wagner and those, and those guys can be his way of coming out. I think he's going to have to have a really aggressive game. I think maybe going up against a guy, a big like Hunter Dickinson could be something that maybe is a little bit motivational for him from an offensive standpoint. I don't want him playing out of his body or anything in terms of, you know, playing against the grain of what's brought them to the dance so far. But I just would love to see him be a little bit more aggressive and play a lot more downhill as a physical guy who has the tools to be active on the glass and push the ball down for, for a, you know, a pretty much straight line drive to the basket where it's going to be hard for a lot of other guys to be able to stop his momentum with the way that he plays. He's a guy who plays really strong above the rim. I'd love to see him catch a couple of lobs and be active around the inside of the paint. It's just a lot of things that 
Scotty Barnes brings to the table that I feel like he's not letting loose. And I think that's nice for now with the way that he played. But I think against a team like Michigan, he's going to have to kind of pull out his bag. And then on the side for um, Michigan, Franz Wagner is a guy who's potentially argued in the in the lottery right now. He's a guy who I think is going to have to continue to play at a really high level. And Hunter Dickinson is covered very, I would say, very well, relatively speaking, um, especially with the fact that Isaiah Livers is out. We touched on that a lot with the idea that with Isaiah Livers being out of the uh, out of the tournament, that Michigan was a team that could be you know, be on high upset alert a few times. Well, Hunter Dickinson had a double-double against LSU, 12 and 11, along with three assists. I mean, a guy who's come up really big for them on the low-key tip is Eli Brooks, who he had 21 points, seven assists, and four rebounds with five threes in that game against LSU. And, I mean, he was pretty much giving Cam Thomas everything that they could uh, that they could handle. That backcourt uh, with Cam Thomas, Thomas and Javante uh, Smart, I mean, it was a battle offensively between those two teams, but Michigan was just better. I think that Florida State is so much better defensively than LSU is, but I think offensively they're going to have to bring their game, and Scotty Barnes has to be somebody who plays a significant role in that. I don't think these two two of two shots, these two of two games are going to be at a slide against a team like Michigan who's no joke. So that would be one of mine. I think Florida State needs the best of Sky Barnes for this game, considering I think that Florida State has the potential to make a Final Four run. I think it has to start with this win over Michigan. I think they have the capability, but it also just does come down to Sky Barnes. I think that he has a lot of upside, too. And this is a, this is a, a player in Sky Barnes that I think can make a lot of noise in this game, and it really could benefit his draft stock as well. I know we've been talking about draft stocks a lot in this episode, because that's what a lot of these players in the tournament are are trying to improve on. Um, for some players like Kate Cunningham, he, he's probably the surefire number one pick. I think for Sky Barnes, it's probably borderline lottery pick or late first round pick for Sky Barnes. But I think that it's it's this could be a huge game for Sky Barnes if he's able to help Florida State defeat Michigan. But I want to talk about my first matchup. And it's Oregon and USC. And these these are two great offenses, Jalen. But I want to talk about Oregon first because Oregon blew out Iowa 95 to 80. And this is a very athletic team. Um, I think it really does come down to their three guards and how well each of them play. Uh, Chris Duarte, Jalen, you've made a case for him being Pac-12 player of the year. He's one of the best guards in the country. LJ Figueroa, I mentioned, was a huge addition to this team. The transfer from St. John's, he put up 21-7 in the last game against Iowa. And then um, Will Richardson, who, like I mentioned earlier, was injured early in the season. Another solid, productive guard for this team. The other thing, too, is that I think the three-point shot, like I mentioned with Syracuse, I think the three-point shot is is going to have to be effective for Oregon. Um, 52%. Uh, from three or they this is a team that made more than 52 percent of their shots for the fifth time in seven games and this is this is an offense that I feel like is dangerous but here's the thing USC just put up 85 points on Kansas and I think that this is a team that you know they have a great inside presence they hold 
a lot of their teams to under 40% from the field. But the thing is, if we're talking about overall offenses, I have to go with Oregon. I think that Oregon's riding a lot of momentum coming off their huge win against Iowa. I think it really does come down to this three-guard lineup of Will Richardson, Chris Duarte, and LJ Figueroa. I do like USC and their inside presence with Evan Mobley, but I feel like when you have the amount of offensive production coming from these three guards you know, at, at Oregon, I don't think anything's stopping them from making it to the Elite Eight. I think I have to agree with you that I think you uh USC will lose. I think Oregon might just be the better team, and I just trust Chris Duarte to be able to make a play in the final moments of the game that are going to be really crucial because I think he's just a very smart, situational basketball player. But I don't think we should just kind of glaze past Evan Mobley like that. And I think it's interesting because we're talking about Evan Mobley as being the lead guy for USC, but honestly, Isaiah Mobley has been just as good in this tournament. I mean, both of them combined for – what 32 points in that game against Drake that that blowout 72 to 56 win over Drake they also had 16 rebounds in that game Isaiah Mobley has been really active on the glass and I thought that was huge and then against Kansas I mean it didn't I mean it didn't stop there when you look at the way their offensive output was in that one as well um it was another one of those games where they combined for a high clip 27 points um this time 21 rebounds and Isaiah Mobley hit four or five threes in the game, which was pretty much one of the most interesting things on the night for them offensively was the fact that he was able to stretch the floor like that. Um, he also played more than uh, than Evan Mobley as well. It was 31 minutes compared to 27. So the Mobley bros have, as a unit have played really solid in this NCAA tournament. So I think that, yes, I think Oregon might have the better um, perimeter offensive threats, uh, uh, level threats, but I think that interior, um, interior wise, the combination of those two guys offensively, I mean, they are coming to play. So I think Oregon's going to have their, their hands full. I don't think this will be a game that's going to be the same kind of dominating win, um, dominating win that they had beforehand. Um, I also think that USC is not going to be able to cakewalk through. Oregon the way they have against teams like Drake and KU. So I think this will be really interesting, a battle of two Pac-12 teams that definitely were going to have to come see each other if, if they wanted any chance at making the Final Four. Now we get to see it. This is going to be one of the best Pac-12 matchups um, that we've seen all season. I think it's amazing that we get to see it in the tournament because these are two great teams, two great offenses, like you mentioned, with Evan Mobley on one end, who's a great defensive presence in the paint, also a great offensive inside presence. And then you have this three-guard lineup of Chris Duarte, LJ Figueroa, and Will Richardson. I think Isaiah Mobley could be another guy that really makes a difference for USC. This game is going to be very interesting. I think whoever wins can make a Final Four run. Let's move on to our second big matchup. Jalen, what is your second big matchup that you're watching out for? So the last teams that I'm going to touch on, we've already talked about them a little bit, so I'll kind of keep it brief, is Alabama versus UCLA. I think that's going to be one of those that's going to be really interesting from an offensive standpoint. My player to watch for everybody to keep their eyes on. We've seen Johnny Juzang offensively for the Bruins. For Alabama, keep your guys' eye out for SEC tournament MVP, Javon Quinterly, a.k.a. Jelly Fan member. This dude 
has been playing at a really high level. I know everybody's going to talk about Herb Jones, who is a, you know, an all uh, an all country player this year. Um, he was an all NCAA prospect. And I think that Herb Jones is still a guy who is arguably the lead guy for this team. Shackleford has played really well for them. John Penny can't sleep on John Petty can't sleep on him. But Javon Cornerly is the guy for me. I think that he's guy he's a guy playing with house money just for guys that don't understand what kind of jump, what kind of production that Javon Cornerly is giving so far this season. Last year he was on Villanova averaging 3.2 points a game playing only nine minutes. This year he's playing nearly 25 minutes a game. He's averaging nearly 13 points. He's averaging 3.2 assists, 2.1 rebounds. He's shooting 44% from three, 48% from the floor. He's played out of his mind. In the game against Maryland, he had 14 points and 11 assists. Insane. Didn't shoot that well from three, but he shot 40% from the floor. He had 11 points, three rebounds, and two assists in the game against Iona to kick things off in the second round um of the of the region and then i mean let's just look at the way that things overall like have been for him throughout the year like he had a 19 point a point game against tennessee um in the sec final like it's just it's little stuff man it's literally just little things where i think that this guy He's playing himself into a legit NBA prospect. I think he's a guy that people need to keep their eye out on. He's playing himself into one. I don't know if he's a first rounder, might be a second, might need to go back to school and be on Alabama as a lead guy, not within this tree, not within the uh, the trees of all these other offensive weapons that Alabama has. I think Javon Quinterly can be dangerous, though, right now. And then for UCLA, we've already talked about it, Juzang, Eaton, uh. I think another guy who's been really interesting, obviously, Tiger Campbell, Jamie Jacquez Jr., I think is another dude who might be pretty interesting on the offensive end as well as a guy who's been technically their second leading scorer with the fact that Chris Smith only played eight games this year. It's going to be a showdown offensively. I think that's the only way to summarize it. Offensively, this is going to be a shootout, and it's going to come down to the final possessions. I think Alabama pulls it out because I trust their defense more mentioned this earlier i'm gonna to have to mention it again i think giant juicing is gonna to have to have a big game and i think it really just comes down to if he if he's able to get the ball rolling early if he's able to get hot offensively i think that can make a huge difference but ucla needs to score early and they have to keep scoring throughout the game because alabama has a great defense but ucla is going to have to keep the pressure up offensively and speaking of keeping the pressure up Moving on to my last matchup, Creighton versus Gonzaga. Now, if we watch the Gonzaga-Oklahoma game, the one thing that caught my eye immediately is keeping the offensive pressure up, and that's what Oklahoma did. Oklahoma was able to keep shooting the ball offensively. They kept taking shots. They tried. They kept trying to score. They kept trying to do everything to Gonzaga's defense. Unfortunately, they lost the game, but I feel like this is something that Creighton is going to have to do. I think they have the capability to take it to Gonzaga early in the game and take it to Gonzaga throughout the game as well. Their problem is the free throw line. 64% from the line. I think that's their biggest struggle right now. 
if they're able to make free throws throughout the game, I think they have a chance to win. I think if they're able to make shots throughout the game, I think they have a chance to win. I think if Marcus Zigorowski has a big game and he goes off for 30 points, that would be huge for them. I think Denzel Mahoney's another guy who I expect to have a big game against Gonzaga. But the thing is, Gonzaga is a team that does not lose games. This is a team with three National Player of the Year candidates in Drew Timmy, Jalen Suggs, and Corey Kispert. This team overall has the capability of going 32-0 and and winning a national championship. I think it really just has to start with their inside presence. I think that Drew Timmy, if he gets it going inside, he starts making twos inside. I think it opens up the floor for guys like Corey Kispert and Jalen Suggs and Joel Ajayi to start making threes early. I just think that Gonzaga has too many offensive weapons. I like Creighton as a team. Marcus Zagorowski is a great player. I think he'll go in the second round of the NBA draft, but I think Gonzaga is going to be too much for them. I agree that Gonzaga is going to be a lot. Um, I also think that we have to really commend this Creighton Blue Jays team, just the fact that they've been kind of pushing through a lot of off-court stuff. There's been a lot of things recording regarding their coach, um, Coach Dick McDermott, who uh, kind of had a little bit of uh, a misslip and it's kind of become national news in one way or another. And they've really been able to push through that and bond through it. And they've played at a really high level. This is a team that could have crumbled under the national media pressure. And a lot of the things that were taking place off the court, but they've played at a really high level. I know Marcus Zigorowski is a name. I know Denzel Mahoney is a name, but look, I'm going to give you guys another name to watch. I know I gave you guys Javon Cornerly beforehand as a guy to watch for Alabama in that game. The name that I'm going to give you in this game is Christian Bishop, dude, down low for the Blue Jays. 6'7", 220 pounds. We were talking about Drew Timmy being as active as he potentially could be, especially coming off of a 30-point performance like he did. It's going to be a battle of the trenches. If you can hold Drew Timmy, that's one offensive weapon down off the bat. And I know that it's hard to go up against a Gonzaga team that has about three to four guys with that caliber, with that ability to put up 30 points a night. But I think starting with with Drew Timmy, who's the guy coming off the hottest performance on that team, I think that Bishop's ability to play defensively down low is going to be huge for them. And this is a guy coming off their last game against Ohio. He had a double-double, 12 points and 15 rebounds with a steal. I think that's going to be something huge. He played big minutes in that game with 32 minutes. So I think one of the bigger things for them is going to be controlling that inside because outside-wise, it's going to be tough as it is letting guys like Corey, Corey Kispert shoot the three ball. I think another thing, too, is that you're going to – as much as you want to cover the inside presence, I think you want to lock up the, the the three ball as much as possible. One of the biggest things that's hurt Gonzaga offensively is that Jalen Suggs turns the ball over at a pretty high rate. He's not shooting the three ball relatively well. So, so overall, Corey Kisper has been the guy carrying them statistically in that category. So if you guard the three-point line very heavily and a guy like Zigorowski can run guys like Jalen Suggs off the line, dangerous to do because the guy can shoot. Uh, mid-range and finishes really well around the rim, but you'd much rather him be finishing inside and maybe taking contact, maybe having to finish through some trees rather than being a guy who gets some threes off and gets hot. This is going to be a really interesting game. Creighton's going to be in for one because they, this is a team that with way too many offensive weapons to handle. But like I said, I think Bishop is going to be a guy people want to keep an eye out for. I'm not saying he's going to have a great, output offensively but I think he's going to do very well in the boards and I think if he can control Timmy inter- internally 
I think it's going to force Gonzaga to have to lean on those other guys. And although that's not a great outcome, it's better than watching Timmy, who's probably their third best offensive option, go off for 30 like he did the other day. So transitioning to our question of the day for our fans, what has been the biggest upset so far in March Madness? This has been a great episode today on the Hoop Talk podcast. Of course, make sure when you subscribe to us on Apple, you rate our podcast five stars and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you guys next episode. Peace.